0: Worthy is the Lamb. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Woe to me, Isaiah cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for by the blood of the Lamb. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, Lord. Send me. Holy Spirit, touch us with the cleansing power of Jesus that our sins would be atoned for that our lives would be forever changed by the indwelling of the holy spirit in us in Jesus name amen amen would you go ahead and be seated please well i don't know about you all this morning but i'm tired I, I, I just hate this Sunday every year that we change the clocks. What is the matter with us? Can we not just leave them alone? Ben Franklin? Maybe you weren't as smart as we all say. Well, after I pray every morning, I check the news feeds to see what's happened in the world since I went to bed the night before because it's really pretty incredible how much can happen overnight, right? It's pretty incredible how much can happen overnight. And um, so I check it out, and I particularly do that on Sunday mornings because I... I don't want to come in here and not know that something happened that was kind of really big, and it's all heavy on your hearts and minds, and I have no awareness of it. So this morning, after I prayed and started looking at the news feeds, I, you know, waded through the business about the presidential candidates and whatever adolescent antics they've been up to lately to try to discredit one another. Good Lord, could we get a president out of this? I mean, is it even possible... And um, so I got through all of that, and then I was checking another newsfeed, and I was so amazed to read the account of a terrorist in the Middle East who had just given his life to Jesus Christ. Listen, no, 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 listen. This guy had been responsible for the death of Christians in the Middle East, and he had met the Lord Jesus in a profound encounter and had actually given his life to Jesus Christ. I know! And the news feed that I was looking at was Acts chapter 9. And in Acts chapter 9, if you'll turn in your Bibles there, you're going to see that there was a terrorist named Saul of Tarsus whose sole mission was to arrest, persecute, and kill Christians. That he was poorly motivated by a complete misunderstanding of his own religion, and that he was using that as a basis to go and capture people who were calling on the name of Jesus and drawing them into persecution and killing them. I think we forget sometimes that one of our champions of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, started out as a terrorist. I mean, you get this, right? I think we, we sometimes fail to make the connection between then and now and how certain ill-conceived individuals can depart from the basis of their own religion and use that as an excuse, a reason, and even call it a calling to go and to arrest, persecute, and kill Christians. But that's exactly who we find in Acts chapter 9 of our text today as we look in the Bible and and see what's going on. Acts chapter 9 and verse 1, as we continue in this series about the journey, it says, Meanwhile, Saul was still... Verse 1, breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. That Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. That he was threatening them, that he had a reputation already. We met him earlier in the book of Acts that he was present and overseeing the execution of Stephen. This is what Saul was about. And if you read on it, it, you'll see that, He went to get authority from the Jewish authorities so that he could go to the city of Damascus and it says to arrest and imprison, drag back to Jerusalem any who were calling on the name of Jesus. And it says either men or women. He didn't care. He wanted them all killed. There was this kind of hatred in his heart that was inspired by his misunderstanding of his own religion. You continue to read on. In verse three, it says that as Saul carried out his plan and he got near the city of Damascus, that he was encountered uh, by Jesus. That a bright light shone down on him, and he was blinded, and uh, he heard a voice. And the voice said, "Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me?" Saul said, "Well, who are you, Lord?" He said, "I'm Jesus. I'm Jesus." whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. So the men, verse 7, traveling with Saul, stood there speechless. Saul had co-conspirators. He was not in this alone. He was a cell group. He was a cell. He was the leader of a terrorist cell. Saul got up from, there, from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he couldn't see anything. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. The first thing that God did to bless Saul was take away his sight. Where do we get off? I'm getting younger. I'm getting more attractive. I'm getting, Paul's saying, I'm getting blind. I'm getting blind. For three days he was blind. He didn't eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias, and the Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias. So one of the people who already had come to Jesus, named Ananias, lived in Damascus, and he was getting a vision. That would be an exciting day, to have a vision from the Lord, and here you are, a disciple of Jesus Christ. And... um, You get a vision from him. Oh boy, the Lord's going to say something to me. I get to do something. And the Lord said to him, Go to the house of Judas, different Judas, but go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul for he's praying. In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. The paraphrase of Ananias' response to the Lord goes something like this. Lord, surely in all your kingdom you have more than one man named Ananias. (laughs) You didn't say, which Ananias? Are you sure it's me? And he said, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. What would you say? What would you say? If you were a Mideasterner and the Lord said, I have just saved one years back named Osama bin Laden, and I would like for you to go and pray for him, what would you say? But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles, And their kings, and before the people of Israel. Catch this. Here's God's plan, verse 16. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So then Ananias went, placed his hands on Saul, and read the prayer that Ananias prays. See how it starts? What are the first two words? Brother Saul. He approaches Saul with some trepidation, some fear, some anxiety. Anything could happen. I'm glad you're blind. Can't see me. Marco Polo. But I have a feeling you're not going to be blind when Jesus gets done with you here. And then you're going to see. And so I start my prayer. Brother Saul, brother, we're not we're now on the same side. So when you can see, don't kill me. Brother Saul? The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. This is cool. The point of all this is pretty simple. I think we want to walk away from this passage with two points, at least two points. And one is one is that our first response to the horrors of terrorism in our world should be to pray for the conversion of terrorists. Our first response to the horrors of terrorism in our present world should be to pray for the conversion of terrorists. Our first natural response is to get defensive, afraid, and establish our own volleys of hatred to return to the places we understand it. But Jesus had something to say about that, didn't he? He said, "I tell you the truth, I want you to I want you to pray for those who persecute I'm just thinking about all the prayers that we prayed here after 9-11. This place was just filled all the time when we were calling out to God for our country. We were calling out to God for the things that occurred to us. And I'm not saying we didn't, but I can't remember a time that we prayed for our terrorists. And maybe some of you did. God bless you. It's kind of outside of our realm of thinking, isn't it? To think that someone who is already motivated by a complete misunderstanding of their own religion to to visit this kind of evil on somebody would be a candidate for the faith. But who else is Saul if not that? Who can't the Lord save? So that's a new part of my prayer life anyway. But I think the other point that is of this passage that's maybe more relevant to our thinking about this journey thing is that there's a there's a portion of our journey as Christians where we are being invited out of empty religion and into living relationship. Out of empty religion and into living relationship. I preach this message one way or another once a month, don't I? Because of the dangers of empty religion, any religion, even empty Christianity, is as dangerous as any other empty religion. But you can see what's happening to Saul here. He's being converted. He's, he's, you can kind of understand where Saul's coming from because Jesus described the Jews at the time described Judaism as uh, a religion that was full of rules and regulations, but Jesus said, but your hearts are far from me. There was no connection to God anymore. They had lost their way. The Bible says when Jesus came, the Son of God, that his own did not receive him. But though his own did not receive him, to those who did receive him, he gave the right to become the children of God. And so we can understand where Saul's coming from because he has a heart for God. Because everybody has a heart for God. Everybody in this room right now has what Pascal called a God-shaped void. That's standard equipment. And we come yearning for God, understanding there's an eternity. And we come with a hunger for God, don't we? Every one of us. And depending on what's at our disposal, we try to fill it with different things. And in some cases, that can be religion empty religion and we we stuff it in there even though it doesn't quite fit right it kind of fits right but it doesn't satisfy does it because you stuff empty religion in there and you're still saying you know i'm doing the stuff but i'm still not knowing god and you're still hungry for god and so saul is part of a religion judaism that had lost its way that had grown cold to god and so when he saw people who had encountered the living Christ, he was threatened by them. And so he was not acting out of any relationship with God. He was acting out of a misunderstanding of his own religion that had grown cold. And he was dangerous because of it. People died because of it. But in this encounter, as you see, he's he's moved from being a misguided religious zealot into one who has profound relationship with the living God through his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. And you see that his whole life flips. His name even changes from Saul to Paul. And he goes from Saul the terrorist to the apostle Paul, one of the champions of the New Testament. That's a big change. And he was taken from empty religion to living relationship. One of the catchphrases that I try to throw around here is that Jesus did not come to start a new religion. He came to offer a living relationship. And I stand by that statement, but I want to take some time this morning to clarify it a little bit and maybe broaden it out. Because I use religion in such a negative way that it's kind of become a pejorative here that it's like it's a bad word. Oh, religion. But in reality, we're all religious. In reality, what we do here is a religion, It's just not a very organized one. True? The Bible says in James chapter 1 that there is a kind of religion that God enjoys. He says in James chapter 1 verse 27, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So that there is a religion that has... As its basis, relationship with God, so that there is a fundamental change in a person, so that they become generous. They don't turn a blind eye to the needs of the world anymore. That's something that happens on the inside. But what's being talked about here is that when we have relationship with God, something happens on the inside that changes us and causes us, the Bible says, to demonstrate at the fruit of the Spirit, such as love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But this stuff comes from the inside and works its way out. That's life. Religion starts from the outside and imposes it on you. And that's what I'm talking about when I talk about empty religion. But in reality, we are a, a religious people here. You know, just to set the record straight, we are a part of the Christian religion, okay? Okay? Who some of you are wondering, right? We don't seem organized well enough to be part of the Christian religion, but we are, and it's evidenced by certain things. We have religious expression here, yes. When we come together, we sing songs that are meaningful to our hearts. And when you come here, you pretty much know what's going to happen, right? I mean, there are very few surprises in terms of what it is that we have planned. We're going to sing a few songs. Tony's going to come up, he's going to say some stuff, kids are going to go, we're going to take up an offering, sing another song, tall bald guy's going to come up talk a while, Then we're going to ask prayer people to come up, and then we're going to see what happens. I mean, that's pretty much the model, right? And you know that, coming. And so when something's out of place, you go, wait a minute. Why are we doing a video during the offering? Why is Tom giving the announcements? What does that mean? And so when there's something out of place, something that is out of what you predicted would happen, then then something's up. And that shows that we're religious people. But listen, just because we do something the same way doesn't mean it has to become empty. We do something the same way as long as it continues to give life. Then it's not empty religion. It's living religion. Now, it's when, over time people keep doing the same thing over and over again, and they begin to forget why they were doing it in the first place, and they just do it to check off the three-song box or whatever, then it becomes empty religion. So I kind of want to rescue the word religion for your sakes. Jesus, I, I've said this all along, that Jesus did not come to start a new religion. But he came to fulfill An existing religion. I mean, uh, obviously, Judaism was already an established religion in the world, yes? And Jesus said, I have not come to abolish that, but to, who knows, fulfill it. He said, I'm going to fulfill all of the religious obligations of that and extend it into a new era. So it's an extension of, of a religion that already is. So Christianity is not a new religion. It is the fulfillment of an age-old religion. It is the continuation of, of salvation history through time. And the fulfillment of Judaism into Christianity was a paradigm shift into personal relationship with God. And that's the big difference between Old Testament and New Testament, is it's a shift into personal relationship with God. I mean, Jesus was really kind of careless with personal relationship language, wasn't he? John 1.12, he says, Yet to all received, those who believe in his name, he'll give the right to become the children of God. The son. He said, You're my children. In John 15.15, 15, Jesus said, No longer do I call you servants, I call you friends. He said, Friends! You're my friends! Friends of God, that's big. And so Jesus was really generous with relational language. And so, you know, what I really want you to try to think about today is how at the cross of Jesus Christ, at the crucifixion, so very much changed, that there's a big difference between Old Testament and New Testament, but the difference is the fulfillment of everything in the old by the cross of Christ. So that when the veil was ripped in two in the temple, when Jesus died for our sins, the law was forever filled, fulfilled by the sacrifice of Jesus. Boink, 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 boink. Missed that one, didn't I? Okay. So I want you to think about stuff before the cross of Christ over on the left side as it's given to us in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the Bible says that, that God's presence was at a physical center. it teaches clearly that the presence of God was seated on the mercy seat, on the Ark of the Covenant, in the temple, correct? In the Holy of Holies. So that's where God's presence was understood to be. Now, it's true that there was a belief that God was omnipresent in a sense, but the experience of his presence was confined and concentrated to a particular locale. That in the Old Testament it specified a required priesthood, that a priest had to stand between the people and God, and that there was someone called a high priest who was chosen annually who would actually go into the Holy of Holies and attend to certain things on behalf of the people. In the Old Testament, also, sins were atoned for after the fact. So in the Old Testament, for example, there was a Day of Atonement when certain sacrifices were made in certain ways that represented an atonement for the sins committed between then and the last time they did that so that's how sins were atoned for it was after they had been committed and in the old testament also you had to really be born into a jewish family you know as i mentioned last week there were certain exceptions proselyte baptism but it really wasn't a big feature in Judaism at all you're born into the into the heritage of the hebrews also in the old testament i think you'd call the experience with god a representative experience and by that we mean that, you know there were prophets and there were priests there were certain patriarchs there were certain individuals you'll point out in the old testament who encountered god yes and they encountered god as a representative of the people and so an individual rank-and-file people like us, that our experience with God was not direct, it was indirect. And so we would live kind of vicariously through Isaiah or Moses or someone who had encountered God. And in the Old Testament also, the, the Old Testament Judaism demanded conformity. That if you're going to be a Jew, you're going to do these things, you're going to be you're going to celebrate these festivals, you're going to keep these laws, you're going to make these sacrifices, and there was a demand for conformity. Now, here's the good news. When Jesus Christ shed his blood on the cross for us, he fulfilled all of that. He fulfilled all of that. Colossians tells us that Jesus fulfilled all of the Old Testament law. And so what we see on the other side is that instead of God's presence being at a physical center... Jesus said, wherever two or more of you gather in my name, that's where I'm going to be. That we, Listen, that we as brothers in Christ, as sisters in Christ, that we can call on the name of the Lord, and he will come. That, is, is, that the, the experience of the presence of God is as near as you want it to be. You don't have to go somewhere. <laughs> that's mind-blowing, isn't it, Tim? He's, he's like right here. And we've encountered him together, haven't we, Tim? We have encountered the presence of the living God just by coming together in agreement as brothers and declaring the worth of his name. That's because of the cross. Also, we don't need a priest anymore. The Bible says in Hebrews that Jesus is our high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. You don't need a priest. The Bible says that if you use a priest in the book of Galatians, that you're counting the cross of Christ for nothing. You're going back to the law. That you're, by you, by you insisting that there's be somebody between you and God, some human, some priest, some professional between you and God, you're actually discrediting the gospel and you're excluding yourself from experience with God. You don't need a priest. You know what Jesus said? One of the things Jesus said was this. He said, He said, Call no man Father. He says, Because you have only one Father who is in heaven. Don't let anybody stand between you and God. Don't learn to depend on somebody standing between you and God. You don't need a priest, Jesus Christ is your high priest. According to the cross, sins are atoned for once and for all. When Jesus Christ died on the cross and shed his blood, he atoned for sins past, present, and catch this, future, boom! Future! Jesus Christ did that historically once and for all. And I want to say that any Christian religion, any expression of the Christian religion that still puts the body of Jesus Christ on the cross is wrong because Jesus Christ died historically once and for all. He was laid in a tomb. He rose from the dead. He walked around, the Bible says, for 40 days, giving many convincing proofs that he was alive. He ascended to the Father, where right now he sits at the Father's side interceding for our sins in a glorified state, not in a brutalized state. That's where Jesus is now. He is not still on the cross. He did that once and for all. Any expression of putting a cross in front of you with the broken, bruised, bleeding body of Jesus is, it, is, an, is an attempt to manipulate you religiously. And it's unbiblical. It's wrong. Because Jesus Christ, the Bible said, died. He shed He's not still bleeding. Jesus, it says, He died once and for all. His blood was shed once, but that same Bible in Hebrews says that that blood continues to speak in our defense. It's a big difference. We are saved by faith into the body of Christ. You don't have to be born a Christian to be a Christian. You don't have to be born anything to be a Christian. You can be like me, born a tumbleweed. How many tumbleweeds? You just woke up and realized that there was, must be a God, but you had no idea what to do next. You're saved by grace of God. He says, I'll, I'll save whoever come to me. Whoever. Brother, I I'm embarrassed to say I don't remember your name. But you once told me a fascinating thing. Would you please come? Yes, sir. Tell me your name again. I'm so sorry. I'm going to kind of call her outside the lines here. Come on up here. You, you don't mind, do you? Okay. It's it's too late if you do. This brother, his wife have been coming here for a few months, I guess, and I've had a couple of conversations with him, and I can't really speak about his life. I I don't know him well enough, but I'm confident I'm getting a leading from the Lord because I know something of his testimony. And I I just think that there's a reason the Lord would have me hand him the microphone
1: to just share a bit of it. Would you mind? Um, I don't. I don't know how long you guys are going to be here, but. That's good. No, I want um, to praise the Lord that, that he did what he did in my life. And uh, I, I felt like I needed to share with Brother Tom is that if needs be, that I can be a blessing to someone here um, in one way or another about my testimony, that I'm, I'm willing to do it. So <clears throat> I grew up in a, a Muslim culture in, a, from, in Tripoli, Libya. I was born there and uh, mom and dad, Arabs from Tunisia, North Africa, and uh, we were raised under the Muslim religion. Uh, mom and dad didn't really have a choice. It's just a religion that you follow. Uh, you're, you're in it by birth. Uh, there is a pride in the Islam religion, the fact that you know who your forefather is, and that's Abraham. Um, with pride also comes um, all kind of other bad stuff, thinking you're the chosen one because, after all, the Jews have killed so many prophets of God that they lost the inheritance, and the second one in line is Ishmael. So it only makes sense that the Arabs have the right to the inheritance of God. Therefore, Islam is the salvation religion of the world. Unfortunately, when you're raised that way, um, and, and Jesus talked about Satan being uh, so strong of a deceiver that there is no room in your brain, or in there's still room in your heart, but there is no room in your brain to think otherwise. So with conformity, like Brother Thomas talking about in Judaism, so is Islam. It's conformity or else. Uh, unfortunately, I, I grew up under all that. Uh, Travelled to Lebanon, Tunisia. Travelled different countries in in my younger years because of education. Finally, I landed in America in '79. Um, First generation uh, Arab-American. Did not really wanted the citizenship because of other issues as well, um, although I was entitled to it. So I fought through my Islamic um, culture and and faith. And uh, some people tried to approach me. I stopped them immediately. Simply with this question, do you know where you came from? Do you know who's your forefather? Do you know God? You don't. You really don't. You, you bunch of Americans, just all came from all over the world. You know, just losers and 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 you know atheists and just all landed here and just robbed each other, killed each other, and took land. You know, I mean, really, the the the, the history of it is is just horrible. Okay, that's at least my thinking. So there is no way you can tell me that God has any regard to you. Um, They stop. I mean, that's enough. And I'm sure they see my eyes, and my my wife tells me about my eyebrows when they get together closer (laughs) to kind of keep your distance. Um, So it took that one night uh, that I um, came home and sat, and I'm looking for some soccer. Of course, you guys call it soccer here, but we call it football. I was looking for some football. And... uh, I turned the channel, it was Channel 4, it was uh, uh, Jimmy Swaggart back then, and he was on the topic of people going to hell, and he included Islam. Muslims will go to hell if you don't believe Jesus Christ, uh, Buddhists will go to hell, and and excuse my language, but I told him, you go to hell too, and click the channel to Channel 6. And uh, so, uh, Billy Graham was on (laughs) 6. Now, Billy Graham wasn't as a wuss as Jimmy Swaggart, you know, (laughs) like this. And and so Billy Graham was stout, you know, uh, confident, and he was on the same topic. But he didn't say that people is going to go to hell. He was saying it, Buddhists need Jesus Christ to go to heaven. Islam need Jesus Christ to go to heaven. That didn't offend me. There's a lesson there. But anyways, so I kind of listened a little bit, and then, and I'll be honest with you, it went over my head because I came in 79. I thought I knew English well. I discovered you guys don't speak English. You speak American very well. I ditched my English, and I had to learn American. And uh, so I was listening, but it was over my head, way, way over my head. I listened maybe about three four minutes. I had no idea what the man was saying. Other than the fact he said, you know, Muslims need Jesus Christ to go to heaven. So I turned off the TV, and as soon as I turned off TV, I was sitting in this recliner. I felt a presence just kind of hugged me. Have you ever had a hug from somebody from behind, you know, like hugging you like this? I felt that hug, but it was also a hug of decision. It was like, I'm going to talk to you. And as soon as I got that, state, I, I, I start talking in my mind in Arabic, okay, because my English, like I said, wasn't that great. And I was saying, who's right, who's right? I'm giving you the interpretation. Who's right, who's right? Is it the Muslims or the Christians? Is it Isa, Jesus, or Muhammad? Of course, we say Sayyidna Isa, Sayyidna Muhammad. We're not allowed to just use the names. So it's the prophet Jesus, the prophet Muhammad. The answer came very clearly, just like I'm talking to you right now, if you want to worship me, you have to come through Jesus. Now, I understood worship, okay? The word worship in, in, in my culture, in, in my old past religion, Islam, is that you give yourself 100%. It's not standing up, raising your hands. There's nothing wrong with that. I do that too. And worshiping the Lord and enjoying a song and enjoying, nowing, you know, bowing down before the Lord and sharing, but literally, you—if you want to worship me, if you want to give yourself to me, you have to come through Jesus. So I asked it again: Who's right? Who's right? Is it the Muslims or the Christians? Is it the or Muhammad? The answer came again: If you want to worship me, you have to come through Jesus. Three times, two hours two hours. I couldn't believe it. I looked at my clock, and, and, it, and it like lifted, like, like he let me go. And I can say he because I know now, looking back, okay? But back then, I had no idea, honestly. I, I felt a very strong presence just held me down. And, and so he let me go. I decided to go to, to bed at that time, but I was very nervous, very nervous, because I, I felt it's a moment of decision. you got to make a decision so I laid in bed right on the edge of the bed. I mean, really, really nervous, and I thought I'm going to ask one more time, just, just to be sure. Who's right? Who's right? Is it the Muslims or the Christians? Is it uh, Isa or Muhammad? And this time, the answer come a little bit different. He says, if you want to worship me, you have to confess Isa. Now, confession is, I'm very familiar with it, Okay. Because that's what the Muslim always say. You hear them in the calling to prayer, you know, "Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah." That means there is no god but one god, and then they go on to say that Muhammad is the prophet of God. It doesn't make it really make you a Muslim. It's just words, you know. They're not the truth. It's a lie. Lie cannot become truth, you know. So, so, anyways, I'm not afraid of saying certain words, except that time I had to make a decision. It's not words. It's a decision. And I made that decision. And i the only thing is that I didn't know what to say. I mean, nobody says, hey, Colin, if you want to become a Christian, here's what you got to say. First, you got to believe. Then you got to say. But it's amazing, Tom, looking back, I didn't know the Bible. I, I've, I've never read the Bible. And if I've read it or tried to read it, I would not understand a word of it. But I did exactly what the Bible said to get saved. I mean, it was incredible. I mean, this is how you know, and you know, and you know, you got saved. It's not a fake. It's not, you know, oh, it's a phase. Oh, I needed God, and, you know, i got to do this, so I did it. and Okay, I'm good now. I feel good. No, no, it was, it was a moment of decision, but also God made it, you know, just like he said in the word, believe. Do you believe in Jesus? Absolutely, I believe in Jesus. But I didn't believe in him the right way. Now I do. So I started confessing. Thank God to Billy Graham. He was talking something about Jesus and about the Father and about the Holy Ghost. So I started saying this. I believe in Jesus. I believe in the Father. I believe in the Holy Ghost and went to sleep saying it. Got up in the morning. I knew something happened to me. I knew I was a new creation in God, but I had no idea what to do next.
2: Give glory to God. Give glory to God, church. Give glory to God, church! Glory to God, church! Glory to God. glory to God! Glory to God! Glory to God! Glory to God! Glory to God, church! Glory to God! Think about what you just heard! Glory to God! Think about what you just heard. Glory to God, church. Glory to God, church. Glory to God, church. Glory to God. Think about what you just heard. Give him glory. 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 glory. Glory to God, church. Who in your circle would be harder to reach than our brother Colin? Who in your circle is outside of the reach of God?
0: Give him glory, church. God bless you. Have a great week.